on me for quite a while, too, so we'll be careful here. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Paul, I, I'll let you make some opening remarks if you'd like to, but also when you do that, what are the biggest challenges facing Christian families as old age starts to come into the picture? Okay, l- let me introduce a couple of people who are here with me. My wife, Mary, is sitting down here. That's, that's her right there. Uh, we've been married for 48 years, so when we do speak about old age stuff, we have a little bit of a personal frame of reference to work with. And then the young lady sitting next to Mary is uh, Nancy Turner, and she's our director of, of volunteer services. And uh, so if you would have any question about whether or not you might be called to engage in this ministry we're in, in feel free to contact her. She, she will be hovering over the table uh, in, in that part of the uh, sanctuary right over there. Your question had to do with challenges uh, facing as, uh, as we get into later stages of life. Let me try to lay down what I think is the basic principle that we're committed to. We are in covenant relationship with one another. My wife and I, 48 years ago, a little more, uh, man, that's drawing close to half a century, we made a uh, covenant commitment to one another uh, about how we're going to trust each other, how we're going to love each other, how we're going to honor one another. And this was without uh, any special reservation uh you know as long as things go well as long as everything suits me fine now actually it was for better or for worse for richer or for poorer in sickness or in health uh, that we would love cherish honor uh, one another and the challenge is that as our abilities change as our uh, mobility changes as our mental functions change can we still be true to those commitments? And we face things at this stage of life that we never would have predicted in the earlier stages of life. Uh, 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years makes a big difference. Uh, Now that's covenant relationship. For some, the challenge is, what do we do with our parents as they're into that stage? And maybe we'll want to pick up on that, uh, that one a little bit more. Okay. Um, I have a mother who's 91, and one of the things she tells me often is how difficult it is to get older mm-hmm. and talks a lot about the change, challenges. And, and I hear this from other older folks, too. You know, aging isn't for sissies and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And uh, I would like to hear a little bit more of the brighter side of aging, since I'm kind of headed that way. I think most of us are headed that way. So what's, what's good about aging? Sorry, there's nothing, Mark. It's just, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there, there are some challenges that really, really are there. Yeah, when, when you can't do what you used to do, and when... When you say goodbye to so many people, uh, that, that gets really challenging. On the other hand, uh, those of us who have reached, uh, well, I'm a curmudgeon, so I can speak from that, that standpoint. Those of us who have lived through life, we have some of the values of being able to see life in perspective. 
we may not get quite as excited about the latest news flash that scares everybody because, quite frankly, we've seen us go through these cycles before. We experience some of the joys of knowing what it does mean to to survive in those covenant relationships, for example. We get to see another generation and another generation uh, you've probably heard that uh, grandchildren are God's way of uh, rewarding you for not having killed your own children. Uh, actually, to see and to love those generations beyond and to be able to mold, to have hope, uh, to anticipate that long after I live the, leave this earth, there are still going to be others who are carrying on to watch, quite frankly, to watch the church at work in doing new things, creative things that we wouldn't have imagined 50 years ago. There are some real joys in some of that. God's at work in this world, and it's kind of satisfying to watch his work in the world. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Safe Haven. Uh, It's fairly new. Could you talk a little bit about its genesis, where it came from? Okay, Safe Haven was established. Uh, We've actually been in operation in ministry for about two and a half years. It was established when a group of uh, people working with the Christian Homes Organization that you're probably familiar with uh, decided that here's another area of ministry that needs to be done. So they uh, began forming it and forming it as a somewhat distinctive hospice organization. There are actually 5,000 different hospice companies in the United States. But ours is formed with a uh, very uh, strong faith-based approach. We are parachurch. We work alongside in partnership with the church. We hold ethics and values that are distinctly Christian rather than simply secular. And um, it's... As I say, we've been here for about two and a half years. Uh, When I first began working, uh, we had no patients yet at that time. Uh, Went through accreditation process, permission to begin to see people. Uh, We have now serviced, serviced over 400 families and we carry an ongoing uh, census of approximately uh, 50 or just a little bit uh, fewer than that uh, patients that we're actively dealing with at any single time. So that's the kind of background of it. Okay. Uh, I don't remember when I first heard about hospice. I, I just know, okay, what is this? And, uh, of course, I took took advantage of hospice when my wife was ill and Ellen did with her husband as well. And many here have used hospice, but how did hospice get started in the first place, just the concept? There's actually a change that's taken place in society over the past hundred years or so that kind of made the field ripe for that. Uh, the development of our rather elaborate medical system uh, met, a, met a point during the past century where almost everybody had seen the majority of people were dying in the hospital. And most people would actually prefer to die at home uh, with their loved ones nearby. 
uh, well, there were some things that happened. Uh, it began to be noted as a distinct service in the uh, 70s and 80s here in the United States. And the specific actions kind of came from a movement in uh, Europe that was dealing with the dying process and how do we treat people not just medically, not ignoring the medicine, but uh, also with greater personal attention. Genesis of it, uh, really the strongest example was going back to the 1950s when a a certain rather well-known woman by the name of Mother Teresa uh, took a... uh, Hindu temple in Calcutta and transformed that into a place of caring for the poorest of the poor and the dying off the streets of Calcutta. And that example of taking people who had great need and simply showing the love of Christ to them at the last stage of their life, that really becomes the model that has generated a uh, Christian approach to giving hospice care. I, I just like to ask you personally. You've I, you've done so many other things in ministry. Why hospice now? Ah, uh, I don't know, Mark. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there are some ways in which I wonder at each of the things that that I've ended up doing. I haven't always said, okay, this is what I want to be when I grow up. In fact, I'm going to, this is a side thing. Uh, Ellen's son was a a little boy in Sunday school class, and he was asked what he wanted to be when he grew up, and he gave the standard answers, and then he said, but if I never do grow up, I want to be like Dr. Boltman. And uh, (laughs) I was weirdly honored by that. (laughs) Um, I have found myself in life uh, doing what amounted to hospice ministry at a time when we never even knew about what hospice was. Uh, From early stages of ministry 50 years ago, um, finding the meaning of being able to walk with people through the valley of the shadow of death. having worked with close companions, seeing how hospice was caring for friends of mine and helping them through that that stage. And there was a point about three years ago when I was kind of reflecting on uh, where calling is taking me and uh, all of a sudden the opportunity was presented. I had at that time just walked through the uh, death of my close companion, uh, Bob Lowry. Some of you may have known him. And we'd taught side by side for over three decades and had been very, very close colleagues. And uh, uh, I, I was just having a sense, God can make use of me in this. And maybe this is what I ought to be doing right now. And we put some prayer into it and decided this is the way to go. So I really feel like it's a calling just as much right now as back when I was a teenager. And I thought, God wants to use me in ministry somehow today. This is how he wants to use me. I shift careers every third of a century or so. So when I get to be around 100, I'm anticipating some other calling may develop. Uh, 
Priscilla came up and hugged you, and I'd forgotten, where well, I hadn't forgotten, just reminded me that uh, her husband, of course, was in, with Safe Haven, and uh, I think it's so providential you're here today because some of you may know this and some of you may not. The last three weekends, we have lost some very solid church members from this congregation. Betty Holmes just passed away last night, and she was in hospice, but all three, each of these past three weekends, were all in hospice, so we've used their services a lot. I did with my first wife. Uh, Ellen did with Steve. And one of the things, and this comes from a question from the congregation as well as from me, um, everyone else was, everyone around me was telling me to put Michelle into hospice. Now, she was a strong-willed woman. You know that. I mean, very determined she was going to fight and, and, you know, fight this and everything, which really, I think, kept her going uh, for quite a while. But she uh, did not want to be put into hospice. It was almost like saying, you know, I give up. And then eventually she had so many uh, uh, drugs in her that she was pretty much unconscious. And I did put her in hospice at that point. And there's a tension within me. Uh, everyone around me, good friends and, and medical personnel saying this is the right thing to do, put her in hospice, but I never did get her permission for that. So there was a tension there, and one of the other questions along with that that was asked is how do you get your elderly parents to make decisions before it is a crisis? Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, several pieces to that, that complex question there. Uh, first of all, for those of you who are worrying about how do I get my parents to do what I know they really need to do. This is payback for when you were young and you didn't do what they asked you to do. <laughs> okay, But uh, actually, for, for parents, for those of you who are approaching old age, and I think anything over 21 is approaching old age, uh, you really would do well to be thinking through what your values are and how you want to have the what-if situations dealt with. For example, uh, do you want to have uh, heroic measures done to keep your body alive at a point when it's obvious that the death process is really well underway? Or do you want to, uh, at that point, go into hospice, which would allow death to occur somewhat more naturally? You can make that decision, and it's best to try to make that decision when you're not caught up in the emotion of it. And I, I appreciate what, uh, what Mark talks about with his wife because uh, she really was a very strong-willed individual say, we're going to get this done. And right at that point where the body has been fighting and the mind has been fighting to try to stay alive, it, it's hard to think through the decision there. A decision that's made earlier that clarifies the steps is really of great benefit uh, for the whole family. How do you work with the process of doing the right thing? If this is the right thing, uh, at the, when you don't have full approval from the past, at this point you have to say, knowing what we know now, what would my partner, my parent, what would they be saying? And so sometimes that's a point for overriding what was the will back then. It's a tough, tough decision. 
How about this? Is it a denial of faith to call hospice? Oh, my. There are times when I believe that it shows and requires a great deal more faith to be able to say, I'm going to trust God to walk me through the valley of the shadow of death than it, than it requires to say, here's what has to happen. If I'm approaching God saying, the only option is for you to heal me, there's actually a little bit of a question about who's God and who is Paul. And I have to, with myself, keep reminding myself, okay, Paul is Paul and God is God. And when I get that messed up, it, it really does make things a little bit more complex. Uh, no, I think just as when Moses knew that he was dying and somehow... Uh, God gave him the ability at 120 years of age to climb a mountain and look over into the promised land and he could say, okay, now, in essence, now I can die. Um, it does require faith to trust God right into the process of death. I don't think it's a denial of faith. It's a yielding to the will of God. One of the toughest things I have been involved in is helping families make a decision about end of life and when do you stop I'm talking about ethics here now you know when do you stop feeding when do you stop mm -hmm. you know when do you take the machine off and all that is what are the guidelines for that yeah they're not easy guidelines. There is, by the way, a, a little chart that's over at the table if some of you want to look through this more that uh, helps with some of that, but it needs a lot more discussion. Basic guideline, when the medical care is doing much more than uh, the outcomes that can be expected. In other words, when the medical care... Uh, whether it's another round of chemotherapy or another exploratory surgery, is simply inflicting pain or discomfort uh, without any reasonable expectation of healing, maybe that's the time to say, let's let the process go on. When the feeding is producing discomfort rather than satisfaction, there's a... Uh, um, one of the things that takes place, particularly in late-stage Alzheimer's, people don't usually think of Alzheimer's as a terminal illness, but it is. Uh, the brain is, gets to where it's shutting down more and more of its uh, capabilities, and uh, the shutting down of the digestive system is one of those things that takes place. We've had patients where the family said, well, he's got to eat. To stay alive, he's got to eat. The digestive system wasn't working, but they had a, a G-tube, a feeding system installed, and that just created additional discomfort because now the stomach's being overloaded and the system couldn't handle it. And so the person was being put through major discomfort. When the medical efforts are going to have negative or no positive effects, that's really a time to say, let's do what we can to help this person be comfortable and help through the end-of-life stages so that there can be interaction and love and 
uh, work with the family without all of those chemicals um, or those treatments uh, entering in. Um, I'm going to ask one more, and this one's a little bit, you may have put your counseling hat on for this one. Uh, this comes from the congregation. How do I learn to show love to a, now the term here is manipulative codependent father. Mm. I do not want to be hurt again, but I want to be like Jesus. Oh my, that's an excellent question. <laughs> Sometimes you try to compliment the question when you don't have a good answer. I'm almost say, saying, I should have my wife answer that question. How do you show love with a person who's hard to deal with? Um, it really is difficult because very often that uh, person has taken this form of being manipulative and codependent, uh, doing all of those things, not because he said, this is how I want to be, but this has been an adaptation that this person has learned, and it's, it feels like the way to be for him. And I wish I could give a simpler answer, but, uh, or, or a, an answer that would be more satisfying. You have to do what Jesus did, which is to choose to do the right thing even when the people that you love are doing the wrong thing. Like Jesus, who loved Peter, while Peter was over by the fire saying, I don't even know that person. I've never even met him. Uh, denying his relationship with Christ. And you still love because, again, covenant love, your choice to love seeks out the right answer rather than the answer that's going to make someone who's misguided be happy with you. Your job is not to make the other person happy. Your job is to love. And just to parallel this, many parents know about the tough love situation that you do with your children where a child needs to have a firmness even though it's not what the child wants. And sometimes it's a tough love action with your parents as well. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Boltman. Uh, again, check out the table at the end uh, of the service today. And, Paul, I think I'm going to have you back at that door. It uh, seems like a lot of people go out that door. So if you need, have a question want to talk to him at the end of the service, he'll be out there and I'll, I'll be back there. But thank you so much. Let's give him a hand for being with us today. Thank you. Let's go ahead and pray. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for the ministry of Safe Haven. And uh, all of us, sometime or other, are going to be in that condition or we're going to have family that's going to be needing that service. And, Lord, we just thank you so much for those services being provided. Lord, we pray for the remainder of the service that you'd be lifted up and honored. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we continue to worship this morning. A thousand times I've failed to 
This morning, as we gather on the table for the Lord's Supper, let us prepare our hearts from these words from the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 22, verse 19, it says this, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. As the plates are passed, those of you who have a relationship with Jesus will receive a piece of bread and a little cup of juice. When you eat the bread, this represents the body of Jesus Christ. This bread represents how his body was bruised, broken, and crushed for the forgiveness of your sins. When you drink the cup, the juice represents the blood of our Savior that was shed for the forgiveness of sins that day on the cross. There's going to be some quiet music playing while the trays are being passed. Let this be a time of prayer, remembrance, reflection, and celebration of what our Savior has done for us. Will you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we can never thank you enough for sending your Son to die for us. We are so undeserving of the grace you have poured out on us. We love you, and we say that not as empty or shallow words, but we mean it in spirit and in truth. We love you, and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. 